Okay, the last couple of weeks, uh, to the scriptures. Last couple of weeks, I've been working in the book of John, and just uh, we covered the wedding of Cana, and then we looked at the first 18 verses in chapter 1. And I, I plan on staying in that region for a few weeks at least. Um, but just to finish up some of the, the gaps in there, the end of chapter 1 deals with you know, John the Baptist and the interaction of Jesus with John. And John's saying, I'm here to announce someone else. But Jesus affirms John's ministry by the fact that he goes to him and allows him to baptize him. And in that, Jesus also makes a statement, uh, you can read it in the book of Matthew, that, uh, or in Luke as well, that uh, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. And, he's, and yet these two are vastly different in their approaches. You have John the Baptist living basically like a hermit and uh, is very specific and the rules of his life. And he's mainly in the wilderness. And Jesus, on the other hand, spends most of his time in town, but he gets out to the wilderness now and then. And one is, you know so different than the other, and yet both of them are fulfilling exactly what God has called them to do. It's an interesting concept because in that, oftentimes we live different than each other, and there's a press at times to conform so that your life looks like mine or mine looks like yours. And yet if these two are so different, and yet it says of John the Baptist. He was filled with the Spirit from birth. So it's not like he was messing up in his lifestyle, but he is vastly different than Jesus. And if God called them to these distinct, separate callings, surely we ought to have some more compassion for those of us that don't think quite the same. That there's an understanding that God has a pretty wide range of what he calls people to. But the fact that John was embraced by Jesus, I want to draw you back to, to one thing. What was John's message? Do you remember? His message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And if Jesus is embracing that repent message, it might be important for us to say, well, what does that mean? Here's a, one of the definitions I found. This was on a website called BibleVerseStudy.com. It says, repent means to change one's mind, attitude, and purpose and carries in its root a sense of pain. Really? He goes on, so repenting from sins doesn't simply mean an academic change of mind, but a heartfelt transformation of one's mind, attitude, and purpose away from sins. In other words, there's a remorse that accompanies this understanding, I need to change. Um, Paul put it this way. He had been dealing with believers who were into some junk that they weren't supposed to be into, and he called them out. 
And then there comes this point where it's time to kind of resettle, and he's going, this sorrow that you walked through, he says, that was a good thing. He says, sadness intended by God produces a repentance that leads to salvation with no regret, but worldly sadness brings about death. So he says, there is a time and a place for this sorrow to be a part of our lives that would move us into different behavior, in different attitudes, in different purposes. So it's completely appropriate that we embrace something like this. Now, it wasn't just John the Baptist that preached this. After Jesus got back from the wilderness, remember he had spent 40 days fasting, and then he comes back and his ministry takes off. And after hearing that John the Baptist had been tossed in prison, Jesus starts out with a message and he goes, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Hmm, I think I've heard that before. When Peter stands up in the day of Pentecost and the church is getting going, what's his message? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. When Paul is talking to the Athenian believers, or Athenians, excuse me, people from Athens, he goes, God has given you grace and we're all part of his creation. But he says it's appropriate that now you repent. And because he's going to set a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. So again, that side note of John the Baptist's ministry and this idea, the challenge in our lives in some ways becomes, when is the last time I saw darkness within me and it moved me to enough remorse over it that I was willing to truly change. You know, what, what caught my attention that this is wrong, so to speak, and enough so that I was willing to change the way I approach things. In movement like this, you can step into times where you're doing the right thing even though it doesn't feel like you should in the moment. Feelings tossed aside, you're going, this is what's light and this is what I need to be doing. Let's put that into family life. Sometimes you can get hacked off with your spouse or your kids while some of us can. All of us can. And there's a response that goes, well, I'm not doing anything until they get it together. Right? That's darkness. So when are you going to embrace light and do what's right, whether they acknowledge their darkness or not? You know, it's like, it's like going, I'm mad, and you're going to know it. I'm cutting you off from my affection. And you're going, well, that's darkness coming out of me, but, but they wronged me. My, I hurt because of what they've done. I get it. It's true. 
But is that appropriate enough to choose not to respond in a loving, godly way? Do you have the mind of God on you in that moment when your anger is saying, no, until you get it right, I'm not doing whatever. (laughs) It kind of stinks, right? But in your heart, you know what God is calling you to. And whether it feels good in the moment or not, you make an intentional choice that says, I'm stepping into light in spite of what's dark around me. That's kind of the idea of what this repentance carries, so to speak. Now, I want to move on to an area that's kind of linked with this. But in in the second chapter, Jesus has, you know, he, he turned water into wine. Everybody had a big party. And then he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, which was common for many, many people to flood the town. And Jesus gets there. It says he makes a whip out of cords, and he drives out the money changers, turns their tables over, and you're going, oh, my goodness. Friendship evangelism just went out the window. There's several dimensions of this. I'm going, is my theology big enough to have an angry God where he really doesn't like some behavior or attitudes? And furthermore, am I at times just not opening my mouth because I'm afraid of the response and I'm justifying it as, no, true love just just keeps her mouth shut and doesn't say a word. It's nonsense if it's rooted in fear, right? That's just false. Now, in this particular case, Jesus was upset because there were religious people or people who had got into a religious system, but they were blocking entry into the worship of God. You know, the, the exchange of money says the temple won't accept certain currencies, so you got to get your change made into the right currency. And, of course, then they could set the rate at whatever they wanted. And you can't buy a lamb for sacrifice unless you have the right currency. See how smooth that becomes? So even though it has the guise of helping people out, it's actually hindering their, their opportunity to get into the, the temple and worship. And, and Jesus is going, I really don't like that. I don't like anything that hinders people from being able to come and meet me. So that, that's something that, in a sense, needs to be considered in a contemporary setting, right? What things would we do that would keep others from being able to worship. And we, we say it's all, it's just part of religion, but 
it's truly important to say, Lord, where's light in this? And what can I do that would open the door for others to worship? Um, That said, the next portion of this is, is amazing to me because many people are seeing the miracles that Jesus is doing, and it says they believe. And what's Jesus do? He said, good. Nope. It says that Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew them. In other words, they believed there was something special going on, but he knows that their hearts really aren't ready to be transformed by that knowledge. And he has yet to fulfill what he has sent to earth to do. That the only way this is going to be cleaned up is for him to die for our sin and to be resurrected. And so he's, he's watching this popularity rise because of his miracles, and yet he's going, not enough. Not enough to be happy about just a, a God who does nice things. But he's calling them to a, a repentance that allows the darkness to be exposed and a decision made to pursue light. This is carried on a little bit more in the third chapter, because it it makes this transition, and it says that a Pharisee came to visit Jesus. His name was Nicodemus, and he's one of the religious rulers. And what we should note is that because it, it labels him as a Pharisee, there's an understanding that this man is living a disciplined life in his religion. He's living a very careful, conscientious life that examines behavior and says, this is God things. These are God things. This is what I'll do. Very disciplined. And yet, Nicodemus is recognizing there is something more about Jesus that I haven't figured out yet. These guys would have known the scripture deeply. They would have been praying. They would have been fasting. They would have been steadfast in their participate in religious events. They would have been applying it to their diet. You know, everything you can look at, they would have, they would have said, okay, we're going to honor God by our outward activity. And Jesus is beginning to drive things and say, there has got to be a transformation of heart. So in this, Nicodemus says, we know something's going on from God when we see your miracles. And Jesus tells him, unless you're born from above, you can't participate or see the kingdom of God. And so this religious man who's doing a lot of things right is being told there is something interior that has to take place. There's something inside that has to be changed. I would have thought that he would have saved that message for the Samaritan woman in the next chapter. But he's looking at the behavior and saying, 
Nah, it's more than that. Well, Nicodemus asked several how questions. How can that happen? And Jesus makes the comment. He says, whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. So he's saying there is something of God and something of spirit that transforms inside our lives. It's not just an outward thing. It's not just a physical, mental thing. Again, that's temporal, right? That's, that's what we know of this day. So that said, Jesus goes back and he says, it's like the wind. It blows where it will. You feel its power. You can't see it. He says the spirit has that same kind of activity. You don't necessarily see it, but it definitely has impact on you. Paul makes this comment in 1 Corinthians. He says, the unbeliever does not receive the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. They can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And he's presenting this idea that the Spirit awakens this understanding of what God's desires are and who he is. And that's why we move toward that and say, I want that, I need that. Again, Nicodemus asks, how, how does all this work? And Jesus kind of chides him and says, well, you're the teacher. You know, and then he goes on and says, if, if you don't understand earthly things, how are you going to understand heavenly things? So, um, again, how to win friends. Jesus um, is just saying what's, what's out there. But he goes into a thing and he says, the Son of Man descended, reveals God. But then he goes on to say in a prophetic voice, he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... It's an Old Testament story of salvation that came to the people when they were being plagued by snakes. Puts up a bronze serpent and people look at it and are healed. Doesn't make physical sense, but it worked. And Jesus is likening to that and he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So he's prophesying what's going to take place as a part of his life. And he's declaring that his, his own life is going to be lifted up. And he, he's alluding to the cross, even though this is the beginning of his ministry. He knows where it's going. Out of that then comes the passage or the verses that we're very, very familiar with. For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He says there was a condemnation already hanging on people because they're living in darkness. And he says there's a tendency for people to love darkness rather than light. But he goes on to say in the 21st verse, but the one who practices truth comes to the light so that it may be plainly evident that his deeds have been done in God. So he's declaring that as we come to the Lord and as his spirit gives us new life, there is an outward manifestation or outward activity that in a sense reveals the heart that's been transformed. We don't change from the outside trying to get it right and hoping something happens within. 
but we acknowledge that what he plants inside goes outward. I love the fact that later on when Nicodemus is mentioned, Jesus didn't just drive away the Pharisee, put it that way. Nicodemus, one time when people are trying to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus says, well, everybody gets a trial, don't they? They're going, what, are you one of these guys, these Galileans? And then later on when Jesus has been crucified, Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea take the body and bury it. So he bought in. He recognized something's going on here, and I need it, even though my outward life to most looks noble. I'm going to read just a couple of verses before I finish. This is out of 1 Peter. This is what one of the disciples, part of his conclusion Therefore, get your minds ready for action, being fully sober, and set your hope completely on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Like obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you once used to follow in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in all your conduct, for it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. There's something that needs to awaken in our hearts that when we recognize darkness and saying this is not the activity of God, we need to be willing to say, but I want to walk in light. And the idea of changing is what that word repentance was all about. It's saying, I'm going to act, believe, set out with purpose differently than what I've been doing. And I guess as we look at that, it's important that this ongoing work of repentance take place. It's not just a matter of each night confessing to the Lord, well, I was bad today, please forgive me. (laughs) Which we do regularly, right? But... At some point, there's got to be a willingness to say, what I did was vile and disgusting in your sight, and I acknowledge that I need to live differently. You have a different standard, and I want that to be my standard as well. You were holy. I want to live holy as well. As we embrace this message of God, It's a wondrous thing to say, that's for me as well. The privilege of walking in light as his spirit guides and directs my life. Now, just a footnote. There are times when we're wondering, will God forgive me? The answer is yes. Short answer, yes. Char and I have this discussion, because often I'll ask her what I consider to be a yes or no question, and I get an extended, what I think is yes. And I'm going, yes or no is all good. Well, there's an extended answer to this as well, but the short answer is yes. He will forgive. And it's true. You may go through a season where you say, that really was 
twisted and sick, and yet I did it. But it helps, that godly sorrow helps move us into saying, but I am not going to do that again. And it's a beautiful thing, the transformation that can come as a result of that. So, Lord, we, we thank you for this scripture that speaks life to us. We thank you for your testimony on earth. We thank you for your sacrifice that brings us new life and the opportunity to have the Holy Spirit living within us. We ask that you will cause us to examine and see darkness where it exists and then be willing to be transformed by your power to truly change direction in you. Guide our steps, we ask. Amen. May your blessing rest on these people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy what it is to walk in your light and the fullness of all that you have. I ask as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day.